is the gospel. He said, all you guys, when you're standing up there preaching the word, don't forget the gospel. So I'm not forgetting the gospel. We're going to talk about it for a little bit. The, uh, the book of Romans, chapter 1 and verse 16, uh, and I read from the New American Standard, Paul's words, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And uh, now I can ask a rhetorical question, but I won't because I'm not sure that everybody would take it as a rhetorical question. And the last thing I want is a hand to go up and talk, start talking about an answer to a question that I don't want you to answer. Uh, and it has, to, it has to do with, uh, are you saved? Uh, and uh, do you know that you're saved? Uh, now, I can't tell by looking at you because there's no, uh, there's no sign that says that person's a believer, that person's a believer, that person's not a believer, that person's thinking about it. Can't tell. Uh, and, uh, and we can put on, we can put on a poker face and nobody can tell. Uh, but there's one person that can always tell and that's God the Father. He knows. He knows the status of every one of the 8 billion plus human souls occupying this oblate spheroid that, uh, that we call earth. And, uh, he knows which ones are going to trust Jesus and which ones won't. And, and thankfully, we won't know that. Uh, and the Scripture doesn't make it that we should know that. And it, it makes a difference to them and where they spend all eternity. But in the final analysis, because Jesus died for everybody. Uh, it's not a matter of, well, this person's never going to trust Christ, so Jesus didn't die for him. That is just baloney. Uh, scripture is clear that the work that Christ did on the cross is efficacious for every living soul that's ever occupied this planet. So that is settled. Uh, now, are you saved? Well, uh, there's a possibility that there are two people that may know, and that would be oneself and God. Uh, now, I will tell you that I am positive that I am saved. Not because I have it inside, but I have the Word. And the Word tells me that if I've trusted Jesus, that He died for my sins and rose from the dead, I'm saved. And I believe that. So that's the end of the issue. It's settled. You may have one, and, and I, the euphemistic you, uh, someone in this room may have some doubts. Uh, and and I, would, I pray for you. Uh, and I would say, if you have any doubts about your salvation, you can talk to the pastor, to any one of the deacons, and they will try to give you the assurance that is so wonderful that you have salvation, that you know if the big one strikes and the building falls down, uh, don't get in my way, because I'm going, and, and God's going to grab me up and take me out of here. So... Uh, that's my pitch. Well, not quite. 
If you haven't made up your mind yet, you've been thinking about it, you've heard the gospel 87,000 times, perhaps, you can repeat John 3.16 verbatim from four different translations of the Bible, but you're still not sure. What can I do to help you be sure? I can't convince you. Uh, No one in this room can convince you. Uh, The only thing that can do that, the only person that can do that is the person, the Holy Spirit. And that's his job. Uh, When we share the gospel with someone, it's not our job to convince them. It's just make sure that they know the truth, that we don't mess it up. And that ought to always be our prayer when we get a chance to give the gospel to someone. Father, please don't let me screw this up. Let it be the truth. So if you're still wondering and you want some assurance, uh, come around, we'll talk, and now we're done talking about that. I'm going to shift gears. And we're going to dive into the, uh, we're going to dive in again to the book of Ephesians. And my, my presentation this evening is called Ephesians Review. Yes, it is. So, this all started, well, it actually started in January of uh, 2023. So, the spring semester at Schaefer Theological Seminary, uh, I was in the second semester of my intermediate Greek course, um, and uh, we spent that whole semester looking at various aspects of the book of Ephesians, uh, read some books that had to do with exegesis, had to do some book critiques, uh, and one of the outputs from the course was I was required to write an exegetical paper on a certain section, um, paragraph or, or section in the book of Ephesians, and I couldn't just pick anything. Uh, the, uh, the professor had, interestingly, we had five people in the class, and he had exactly five different sections in Ephesians that he wanted us to look at. Now, he, if we'd have had ten people, he'd have probably had ten sections, but we didn't need that many. So he had these five sections, and one of them was Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Uh, I picked that one. Uh, that is the section on the relationship, the household code relationship between husbands and wives, and I wrote my paper on that. So I had this paper. Uh, And then an opportunity came up to uh, stand up here and teach, Uh, and I was a little rusty. In fact, I'm a lot rusty right now. You'll find that out in a couple of weeks uh, in, uh, in Hebrew. And uh, so I said, man, that's going to be a heavy lift. Uh, But I could do something on Ephesians. And Pastor Dave said, okay. So I put something together and I talked about that. And uh, another opportunity came up and I said, well, what am I going to do now? I I just went on and I did the next section between uh, the relationship between uh, children and parents, fathers and sons, and uh, slaves and masters. And then a third opportunity came up and we did that last week. We talked about the armor of God. Uh, And that was a lot of fun. And the more I get into this little book, the more fun it is. 
And I thought, boy, what a weird way to teach the book of Ephesians. You jump into it uh, most of the way through chapter 5 and then do three lessons. And then we're going to shift off to something else and leave everybody hanging. So I said, well, let me do one more and I'll call it a review. And this is not meant to be the start of um, a verse-by-verse, page-by-page study of the book of Ephesians. I would love to do that someday, but this is not the time, and I'm not ready to do it right now. It takes a whole lot more work than what I've had to put in to do this little review here this evening. Uh, And uh, besides, we have other things on the the horizon that we're going to do. We're going to start... we're going to start back up in, uh, in Deuteronomy. A lot of folks have been asking about that. And so I've said, yes, we're going to start back up in Deuteronomy. And that's going to be an intro. Uh, but because it's so important, we'll do that intro. And then we're going to jump back to Genesis 1.1. And I'm going to teach a four-lesson series on Genesis 1-11. through 11. And, and that's going to be dynamite. That is so important. And... Please, uh, please try to catch that. But for this evening, I've titled this a review of Ephesians. So we're going to fall back a little bit, look at, uh, try to fill in some of the gaps. I'm not going to try to give you uh, as much meat as I could, and I did in the three previous lessons that I've taught, but a, a little bit of my arrogance is probably getting out in front of me, and, and there are probably several people in this room, may, maybe most of you, that know more about the book of Ephesians already than I do, and you should be standing up here teaching it. Uh, but you're stuck with me for tonight, so you're going to get my, uh, my attempts at, uh, at doing this justice. Um, Ephesians is a wonderful little book. It's some... Uh, 24, 2,500 words. That's a little book. Uh, we're, uh, we're reinstituting the Chafer Theological Journal, and uh, we have set the minimum size of papers for submission is 3,500 words. So that's 50% almost bigger than the book of Ephesians. We originally said 5,000 words, 5,000 to 15,000. And I'm thinking, my word. At the limit, we had set most of the work of Paul would not be eligible to be included in our journal. Now think about that. I think, well, we're out of line there, but we're adjusting that and, and pray for that. We're, we have a meeting tomorrow to talk about the first issue of the journal, and we do have papers coming in, and we're, tomorrow at our meeting, we're going to be interviewing uh, two gentlemen uh, for the position of managing editor editor for the for the journal so so pray for that journal and pray for that committee that's working on that now Ephesians so we're going to talk about the author that's Paul there's no doubt about that uh, will uh, uh, there is there is dispute uh, over that uh, Harold Honer uh, who has departed now and gone to be with the Lord was the uh, uh, head of the Old Testament department or some part at Dallas Theological Seminary. I believe our beloved pastor was able to sit under his teaching uh, before he went home to be with the Lord. And uh, Dr. Honer is the, uh, uh, <clears throat> is the expert uh, in the book of Ephesians. He wrote a, an exegetical commentary on the book of Ephesians that's 
about that thick, uh, some 900, almost 1,000 pages. And uh, Dr. Honer, in that commentary, devotes 61 pages to discussions about the dispute over who is the author of Ephesians. Did you get that? Now, uh, I wasn't sure, so I looked at the book, and uh, what? Oh, here, verse 1, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Well, that's good enough for me. If it's in the Word of God, then I'll take it that way. And, and I think that's the way, I know that's the way Dr. Honer came down on that, but it might not surprise you all to know that the, uh, uh, the split on that is not much different from 50-50. It's uh, a little bit in favor that Paul is the author of Ephesians. And so, you know what, 54-46 or something like that, or uh, it's very, very close. Uh, when that start? Um, now, the early church fathers, uh, uh, most of whose names I can't pronounce, and, they, and the names slip away from me anyway, if I, if I read them, I'll lift a list of them off to you, you'd recognize, well, yeah, I've heard of that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy. Most of them uh, had no doubt that Paul was the author of Ephesians. And it wasn't until about the uh, uh, 18th, 19th century, some, uh, in the 1800s, something happened in the water in Germany, and all these guys came out of the woodworks that suddenly were these higher textual critics uh, Julius Westhausen and other people of this crowd that all of a sudden things had to be different from what the scripture said they were. And uh, again, I don't know these men's state of salvation. It, if they died knowing the Lord or not knowing the Lord, I don't know that. Uh, they know now and, and God knows. Uh, but, but I don't. But anyway, since then, so for the last couple hundred years, uh, it has gotten to be where it's less and less people that will believe such a thing as Paul being the author of Ephesians. Uh, and uh, they've got their reasons for that. They'll say, well, this word uh, in, uh, in uh, verse 1, but actually it's in, yeah, it's in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus... And who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, and there is some textual uh, variance. There's a textual critic issue of the, of the word, the Greek words, and, and epheso, uh, whether they're actually in the Greek or not, because there are like three early manuscripts that don't have those words in it. So, oh my gosh, they must not be in the original. And... Uh, they don't, well, that doesn't have anything to do with Paul being the author. It has to do with, it, is it really to the Ephesians? And, and they, don't, they don't question the fact that that word, those words might not be there, but in the Greek also, there's a superscript uh, at the top of the scroll that says, pros. Ephesus, okay, so to the Ephesians, so they don't have a problem with to the Ephesians being up there, but that word can't be in verse, I don't know, I don't get it. Anyway, so uh, that textual problem, we come down on the side that those words are in there, 
so Ephesians, we all know it's divided into six chapters. The first three are doctrinal, theological, uh, and instruction, and the last three are so-called paranetic. Uh, so uh, they're imperatives, strongly advising, and uh, uh, the imperatives. So what's the purpose of the book? We'll get into that. We will get into that. Let's see what we got next year. So the high-level outline that I have, and I've showed this to you before, uh, it's, it divides up into four parts. The letter opening, that's the greeting. We have just, we have just read that, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And then you get into the section that's called the indicatives, or as I said earlier, the doctrines and the theologies. Uh, that's the first half of the book, first three chapters. And then uh, we come to the imperatives, which is the last three chapters, and that's the duties, the ethics, the ethics, the, the therefores and the so what's as a result of what's written in the first three chapters. And then as in all books by Paul, there is a closing. Uh, and there will be something in the closing about faith and love. That's the high level outline. So I'll give you a chapter outline. Uh, here we go. Chapter one. Uh, Chapter 1 has the prologue or the salutation, as we have talked about. And uh, then uh, we have an extended praise to God for all the spiritual benefits given to those who are in Christ. That long sentence on my part uh, is, <coughs> excuse me, the introduction to the longest sentence in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Uh, and that is a... Uh, a eulogy, a detailed uh, blessing uh, for God the Father and all the things that accrue to those who have trusted Christ and His work. Uh, and it is an awesome thing. You should read that regularly. I don't know about memorizing. I've gotten to the point in my life I can't even memorize my telephone number. So um, I, I won't try to do it, but it is, it is such a pleasure to read through that and, and see all the things that, that we have by the grace of God there. And then we get to the second half, uh, and the second half is a commendation to the Ephesians. This is Paul, the commendation to the Ephesians for their faith and love and a prayer for wisdom and revelation. So the, the second half, verses 15 through 23, uh, not quite as long, about 60% as long as the first one, is mostly a prayer by Paul, uh, and that is the first chapter of the book. So what do we have there? So we got a chapter in the book of Ephesians that is three sentences long. Uh, the prologue, that's not even a complete sentence. Uh, verses 3 through 14, the longest sentence in the Bible, and then, and then one a close third, uh, the last part. Three sentences gives you the... Uh, Chapter 1 and the, uh, the topics that I've just listed there in this slide. Chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 is uh, a transition chapter. In chapter 2, the Ephesians are reminded of their relationship to God before and after their conversion. In, in 2.1, it says, and you... So, 
That's the Ephesians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul loves long sentences. I'm telling you. And uh, the Ephesians, that was their position before they trusted Christ. They were lost uh, as any unbeliever is. At the end of that, uh, the, the end of that uh, section there at uh, at two ten, we are aware of uh, the verse that uh, uh, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There's a lot of walking in the Book of Ephesians, and, and that's an early that's an early example of it. So there, the Ephesians are reminded then in the second half of that chapter of the new union of Jewish and Gentile believers who are now considered one new person, the church. So this is what they find out in the second half, that uh, before they've been sort of treated as outcasts. Uh, they, don't, they don't know the law. They don't do all that stuff. And uh, along comes Paul and says, you don't have to. Uh, uh, you are now equal uh, with the Jews who are believers uh, and uh, in one, and that is a wonderful thing. Chapter 3. So, Paul describes in chapter 3 the mystery. This is a, actually, this is a parenthesis. Uh, he's given in chapter 1 uh, the blessings of God and his prayer for believers. In chapter 2, he's given the Ephesians, uh, told them to remember what they used to be and remember who they are now, that they have the same rights uh, in, uh, in uh, the church as the Jews do. And now he's going to take a, put a parenthetical in there in chapter 3. He describes the mystery. And what's the mystery? The mystery is what we talked about in chapter 2, the union of Jew and Gentile believers in Christ. Uh, and his ministry, Paul's ministry, is to the Gentiles and dispensing that truth to the Gentiles. So that's chapter 3, about the first half of it, verses 1 through 13. And then Paul prays. Paul prays that the Ephesians believers will be strengthened in love. Pay attention to love. And the union, pay attention to union, of Jewish and Gentile believers that it might be carried out in God's power. So those are words that we'll see throughout the book. Uh, love, unity, and don't forget walking. Well, that takes us to the end of the first half of the book and the so-called doctrinal theological section. And now it is the, uh, the put-it-to-work section, starting in, in chapter 4. Chapter 4. So there's a lot of therefores in the book of Ephesians. And uh, uh, a long, long time ago, and I've probably told you this before, and, and I'll apologize. If, no, I won't. I'll just tell you again. Uh, I, asked, I, had a, I asked Pastor Dave, I said, I was in a section of Ephesians. I said, it says therefore. 
So I know that's talking about what happened before, but you go happen, you go look at the previous, and it says therefore, and and you go and you, how far do you go back? Uh, and uh, he pretty much said you go all the way back to chapter one, verses three through fourteen, and work your way forward with what is built on that. So, but anyway, so like chapter four, verse one. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, sowing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, And so back in chapter 2, verse 10... We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Uh, That sounds like a calling to me. And now he's telling us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Uh, The thing in the first first 16 verses here of chapter 4 is the the message is uh, to uh, walk in... uh, Walk in unity. The second part is walk in holiness and not as the Gentiles, the Gentile unbelievers as they walk. Uh, And that's chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. In chapter 4, we find such uh, interesting things as uh, in addition to walking in in a manner worthy of our calling, the discussion about... uh, Jesus uh, granting, giving spiritual gifts to the church, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, the work we have to do, the work we walk in, uh, the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of, this, of, this, of God, the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Uh, so responsibilities there. Uh, he tells us to, uh, in the second part, walk in holiness and not as a gender. This is the part where he says, uh, don't walk as the old men, walk as the new men. And, so, and some will, will, will mistake this to say, you get rid of your old sin nature here, and you don't. Uh, you still have your old sin nature. You're stuck with that until you get your resurrection body, and we know that. But the old man, your body of sin, put that off and walk in the newness of the, of the new man that you have by these gifts. Laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let give the devil an opportunity. In verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you and walk along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Where are we going here? 
So chapter 5 and 6, I have them listed together here on my little outline because uh, uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff here, but it, it, it spills over into chapter 6. So walk in love by imitating God and abstaining from evil practices. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Walk in the light by not becoming involved with the evildoers in their works. Uh, chapter 5, verse 17, excuse me, 7 through 14. Walk in wisdom through the filling of the Holy Spirit in their, their, their to the Ephesian believers are to walk in wisdom through the filling of the Holy Spirit in their domestic and public life. This is uh, the, almost the climactic session there. If, if we look at Ephesians 5, uh, 15, we see, uh, he says, therefore, a lot of therefores, therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Verse 16, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But, be filled by the Spirit with the result that you are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject one to another in the fear of Christ. That awesome section there is, is how to live walking in wisdom. And uh, did I? Let me go. Oh yeah, yeah, I was, that, that section there includes the, uh, the household codes. So all of the, the three lessons that I taught about uh, the uh, household relationship between uh, husbands and wives, that section of 522 to 33, and then uh, that's the end of chapter 5, and then chapter 6, verse 1 through 9, uh, two sections uh, a short section on the relationships, the household code relationships between uh, parents and children, and then the relationship between slaves and masters, and that takes us up to six nine, and then uh, then we get into the last part, which uh, we talked about last week. Be strengthened in the Lord in order to be able to stand against evildoers. Put on the full armor of God. And we went through each little piece last week, and I had some, and I had some questions about the pieces of armor and, and their function and their, and their purpose and, and all of that stuff. And that, I had so much fun uh, doing that uh, that, uh, um, well, I just enjoyed it very much, and uh, it gave me a lot of, Maybe some of you all got some pleasure out of that too, I don't know. Uh, so, uh, 
Several links exist between the first and the last part of the books. Uh, Walk is used in both parts. Love is a very prominent theme. The spirit is prominent in both parts. The concept of the body, uh, the concept of the mystery, the Ephesians before before conversion are governed by evil. In the second part, having been converted, they are exhorted to be strong in the Lord and to stand against the schemes of the evil one. The book begins with spiritual blessing and ends with spiritual warfare. And then there's a closing. Uh, a sign-off about uh, who's going to deliver the letter. Tychicus and Paul's uh, final sign-off with uh, love and grace. Okay, we've talked about already who who the the author was. The author's Paul. We'll stipulate that. Uh, And... uh, I don't think we need to go any further into that. Uh, the place. Not the place he's writing to, but the place he wrote it. So Paul wrote this letter when he was imprisoned in Rome on his first Roman imprisonment. And he wrote at that time the so-called prison epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, Philippians. And the... Uh, the similarities between Ephesians and Colossians have led most scholars to conclude that Paul wrote these two letters uh, at nearly the same time. And that, that makes sense. If you're writing uh, letters to two different people, two different organizations, but there's a lot of the same stuff in them, the letters are going to sound uh, a lot alike, and they do in this uh, case. Uh, interesting factoid, uh, there's not as much scholarly question about Paul being the author of Colossians as there is with Paul being the author of Ephesians. Uh, getting tang-tungled here. Uh, I, don't, I don't fully understand that. Uh, there's very strong evidence for his having written Colossians and Philemon during the first imprisonment and uh, why that doesn't roll over to a, a better acceptance of him being the, uh, uh, the author of Ephesians, I don't know. So, but anyway, we'll stick with the place and the date given, uh, written in, uh, in Roman prison at about A.D. 62. Like it says right there. The audience. Uh, well, the audience is Ephesians, and that says so in, in chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, Paul, knew the, Paul knew Ephesus and the church in that city very well. He had ministered in Asia Minor, uh, the Roman provi- province of which Ephesus is, was the capital, uh, and with Ephesus at his headquarters for about three years from 53, give or take, to 56 uh, A.D., and you can read about that in Acts well, the chapter 19. So Acts 19, 1 through 21 uh, tells all about that section. And it appears that uh, he sent this epistle to the Ephesian church so that the Christians there would subsequently circulate it to other churches. Uh, at least two other New Testament books went to Ephesus. Uh, that would be First and Second Timothy. 
John's Gospel, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation probably did as well uh, much later because John did his writing in the, in the last decade of the first century. Antichicus, as I mentioned, uh, evidently delivered the epistle to the Ephesian church. Uh, and he says that in Ephesians 6, 21 and 22. And uh, Paul wrote, interestingly, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and Titus while he was at Ephesus earlier in that period I mentioned. Now, what have we got here? Okay, the believers in the church at Ephesus and other surrounding areas were the genre. I didn't even fill this out. Uh, I don't know why. It's, it's an epistle. What's an epistle? It's a letter. And uh, letters of uh, that type were common in that period around the first century where you have sim something similar. You have an opening, a salutation, a, uh, uh, a body of, uh, in, if they're uh, theological, a body of uh, theology and then a body of application and then a closing. So it's a letter uh, which is synonymous with uh, epistle. Here we go. This is, oh yeah, you can read all of that. So um, this is Ephesus in, uh, in Paul's day. Uh, let's see. Let me... So right here, this is on the west coast of, it then was Asia Minor, it's now today is modern Turkey. Uh, across the Aegean Sea, you have Greece over here. I've put the town of Corinth in there so you can see where that is. And um, Laodicea is to the east of there, about 100 miles. And Colossae is just a little bit farther away. Colossae is the, was where the, the book of Colossians was written to. I mentioned Laodicea in here because one of the early church fathers who didn't accept that Ephesians was written by Paul uh, took Ephesus out, not, not, didn't agree that it was to the Ephesians, took Ephesus out and put in Laodicea there, and that was a heresy that they had to deal with. So that's about all I want to say about that slide. The purpose. So uh, if you've read, and I'm sure all of you have, uh, there aren't any big problems uh, in Ephesians that uh, necessitated Paul writing them a letter. Uh, like the Galatians. Okay, Galatians, you got the, the heresy of the Judaizers and all the problems that they had there. Uh, the Colossians, uh, they had false teachers within the church distorting and minimizing the person and work of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians, factions, divisions, gross immorality and licentiousness, all problems that Paul was dealing with and providing some correction. Not so with the book of Ephesians. So there's a lot of debate among scholars over what's the purpose of the, of the book. Uh, some say it's a pastoral letter against evil powers of the cult of Artemis, you may or may not recall that uh, the temple of the, the goddess, god, goddess Artemis, 
was in Ephesus and there was a large following of that uh, cult god. And, uh, but there wasn't a whole lot of uh, knowledge about uh, that Artemis was, a, uh, was an evil god. I think she was supposed to be a fairly friendly god. But anyway, there was some uh, discussion about that. Uh, some say that it was a, a parable of the prodigal son, and it was only in this case it's Jews and Gentiles. Uh, some say it addresses broad Christian principles of unity and love. And there's something to that, unity and love. We'll talk about that. A little bit more it says animate the word unity. So uh, henates is the is the way you pronounce that Greek word, a state of oneness or being in harmony in accord. This word is a, uh, I guess it would be a two pack. It's not a hapax legomena because it's used twice in the book of Ephesians, but it's not used anywhere else in any of the New Testament. The term one, hen, the first part of that, expresses unity, and it is used, one, uh, 14 times in Ephesians. Uh, And uh, we won't list every one of those. I could. No, you don't want to hear that. Love is the the other word we want, and we'll spend some time looking at this one. Two words, two Greek words uh, that we're looking at here. The first one, agape, that's the noun. Uh, and the second word, agapao, is the verb. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll look at those in some detail here. Uh, I, did a little, I did a little study. Yeah, you can see that. So what we have there, that is the, that is the noun, agape. And all of the, uh, the smokestacks uh, are uh, the number of times that word, the noun is in the various writings of Paul. So we're not looking at the whole New Testament, just looking at the writings of Paul. So from Romans through Philemon. And what do you see? Uh, the one, the top here, that's 14 times, and that's in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I bet you can guess which chapter in 1 Corinthians has the most occurrence of it. Why, chapter 13, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. And then the second most usage of the word agape is in our book of Ephesians. It's ten times. And, so, and that's more than, than any of the, of the others. Uh, so, um, the statistics. It occurs ten times in Ephesians, as we've seen, out of a total of 75 times in all of Paul. So, Hence, one out of every 7.5 times Paul uses the word, he uses it in Ephesians. Uh, He uses it 4.12 times per thousand words in Ephesians compared to about half that, 2.18 times per thousand in all the other other letters of Paul. So what's that mean? So this little book, uh, 2,400 and some words, uh, has... Uh, a usage rate of the word love that is essentially double all of the other uses in uh, all of his other works. Uh, that tells me something about the, uh, the emphasis that Paul means uh, on love, the noun, in the book of Ephesians. Uh, another stat, with the exception of 1 Corinthians, where it's a total of 14 times, as I pointed out, 
Um, the word occurs more times in Ephesians than in any other letters of Paul. You can see this is the, this is the smokestack for Ephesians, and that's higher than all the others except for 1 Corinthians. We just said that. Uh, now, combined noun and verb usage, uh, and we'll show you, I'll show you a verb chart here in just a second, but the stats are combined noun and verb usage occurrence is 8.23 times per thousand uh, in Ephesians compared to 3.3 times per thousand in all the others. Hence, uh, the noun and verb form, noun or verb form, occurs more than twice as many times per thousand words in Ephesians as it does in all the other letters of Paul. Here's the verb chart. Uh, the verb is agapao, uh, and uh, it doesn't occur in as many books, but you can see it occurs, well, it's the same number of times in, e in Ephesians as the noun word. So, so between nouns and verbs, we've got 20 times in the book of Ephesians. The next closest is Romans with eight, and the others are down uh, twosies and foursies uh, for, for occurrences in, uh, in those books. Um, it occurs, the verb is uh, 10 times in Ephesians out of a total of 34 times in Paul. So nearly one-third of the occurrence of the verb agapao in Paul occurs in the small book of Ephesians. Uh, probably enough on that. So why don't we call Ephesians the book of love? And uh, yeah, I think it's a good idea, Mike. So uh, we'll break that down into uh, God's love, Christ's love, and people's love. So in God's love... And I'll cite verses for each one of these. God's love for humans is mentioned, <coughs> excuse me, discussed in chapter 2 and verse 4. Believers are rooted and grounded in God's love in 3.17. The love and faith that comes from God is discussed in 6.23. And Christ is called the beloved of God in 1.6. Christ's love... Paul prays that the believer might experience or know Christ's love in 3.19. Believers are enjoined to walk in love just as also Christ loved us and gave himself for us in 5.2. Paul enjoins the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her in 5.25. Believer's love. Uh, in one four, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, and that's before him in love uh, to one another. Uh, one fifteen, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. Four two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Four two. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, 4.15. From, continuing, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love, 4.16. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God 
as a fragrant aroma. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, 525. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So that verb is there. Love their wives, loves himself, loves his wife. Three times in 528. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. In 624, the last, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So the, the following quote uh, is from Harold Honer, Dr. Harold Honer in his, uh, in his uh, commentary. Quote, in summary, out of the 20 occurrences of love in Ephesians, there are eight occurrences of God, the Father's or Christ's love for humans, 11 occurrences of the believer's love for one another, and one mention of a person's love for Christ. This frequent use of love seems to furnish the key to the purpose of the book. Apparent are both God's love for people and the believer's love for one another within the community. Love, in action with the community of believers, fosters unity. The other prominent theme. Unity without love is possible. But love without unity is not. Love is the central ingredient for true unity, laying the foundation for internal and external unity and that's from page 105. Some takeaways. Ephesians is a wonderful book of encouragement and instruction in the word, both for the original recipients, the Ephesians, and for believers today. We have to recognize when we read the book of Ephesians as when we read any book of the Bible that, uh, first off, it wasn't written to us. It was written to the audience that received it at that point in time. And in this case, it was written to the folks that were the church at Ephesus and the surrounding areas. Uh, but there are applications to us today, uh, certainly in the household codes. Um, and, um, and, and in other areas, uh, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's just as applicable today as it was then. So marvelous. The key themes of love and unity are evident throughout. God's love for people, believers' love for one another, believers' love for God. And believers are equipped for spiritual warfare by the armor of God. And, uh, and we know that uh, we had a, uh, the theme in our vacation Bible school this year, we're keepers of the kingdom, where the kids went through a, a wonderful little skit where they learned various days, the different aspects of the, uh, of the spiritual armor. Uh, and it lined up pretty well with, uh, uh, with actual words in, uh, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And I think that's probably the end of my slideshow. I'll click it one more time. Yep, that's all she wrote. So uh, I would be happy to uh, entertain any questions after we're done here. Uh, if uh, they're not too hard, um, I will try to answer them. If not, I will send you to Mark, and, uh, and he'll take care of you. Uh,
So, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we love you and we uh, thank you for the truth of your word. Uh, we thank you that you have uh, uh, delivered the word to us uh, in a manner that uh, uh, we, can, we can read it, uh, that you have preserved the word uh, down through the millennia, uh, even though there are questions at times on the part of so-called scholars about the veracity of the writing and who the person was that actually wrote and who may have edited and, and all of that uh, stuff that is not necessary for our consideration, uh, but to have the word uh, as you've given it, to, to, have, to have men available who have a knowledge of the original languages and can interpret and, and translate the, uh, uh, the scripture from the original language and bring them to us in a proper term. We thank you for those gifts that you've given the church, Father. Uh, we thank you for the grace and love that, uh, that you have for us uh, and that you've demonstrated uh, in many ways uh, throughout history, most notably in the gift of your Son to us. And he has revealed you in time so that through him and through the words of the Scripture we can know you. We thank you for the time that we have together here this evening. As always, we pray that... Uh, if there are glitches, doubts, uh, hiccups, that uh, the Holy Spirit will, will protect us from the errors, uh, reveal the truth of your word to us so that we can understand it and in the power of the Holy Spirit grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ towards a full maturity and service to you. We lay these things before your throne of grace now in Jesus' name. Amen.